Let's go ahead and open our Bibles this morning as we continue to make our way through the Gospel of Mark. This morning, considering the portion of Scripture in Mark chapter 12, we'll be reading verses 35 through 44. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you should find one somewhere near to you, either in the seat back in front of you or in the the, uh, chair in front of you. You'll find this morning's Scripture on page 797, if you're looking to use one of those hardback Bibles. Mark chapter 12, let's begin reading as we hear God's word in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Would you join in praying with me as we consider God's word and ask for his help this morning? Our God and Father, we do look to you this morning, mindful of our need, mindful of our great dependence upon you. And because of that need and because of our dependence, we come in faith and we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our mediator. It's on the basis of his ministry, on the basis of his service, that we approach your throne this morning as your people, seeking grace to help in time of need. And Father, our our needs are many and varied in this very room, but we recognize that you are a wonderfully generous and good Heavenly Father, you are the one who is able to meet all of our needs, who will ultimately and only satisfy all our longings, that you will strengthen us for daily life. And this morning, Father, we are mindful particularly of our great need for your word, because you have the words of life. So we ask that your word to us this morning would be effectual. Help us, Lord. As we've just heard it read, and as we'll give our attention to it, would you help us to pay attention with all diligence? Lord, how easily our minds wander, how easily our thoughts begin to stray, and so we ask for your aid in this. Help us by your Spirit that we might not only hear it, but Lord, help us to receive it by faith and love, that we might lay it up in our hearts and that we might practice it in our lives. Would you do this by your power and Because of your goodness, we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been making your way through Mark's gospel, you remember that the prior 
section just previous to what we read ended with Mark's brief comment on the events, saying that from then on, no one dared ask Jesus any questions. Silence. It wasn't the sort of silence where good students are afraid to ask more questions. It was the sort of silence where malicious opponents are silenced because they know that they've been shut down. No one dared ask him any more questions. The religious leaders, if you remember, had done their best to trap Jesus. They were coming and they were asking questions in order that they might find some grounds to discredit him and ultimately to destroy him, to make a fool of him. But they failed. They dared not ask him any more questions. Now, while the opponents of Christ might be silent at this point, our Lord Jesus is not. It's at this point that he goes on the offensive. Now, it's Christ's turn to ask the questions. And in his asking, he's driving right at the very heart of the issue. It's time for him to speak directly as to the real reason as to why he's opposed the real reason as to why the crowds we often read are amazed at his teaching, the real reason as to why ultimately he's come. Because the answer to his question that he poses to them is the real reason for the rightful supreme authority that he has in his person, the rightful authority as to why he can curse fig trees, as to why he can rebuke religious leaders. He can cleanse the temple. He can heal lepers. The reason why he can raise the dead and ultimately why he has the authority to say sins are forgiven. The question he asks gets right at that. The question he asks gets at something that we all know inherently. Whether we want to admit it or not. Whether we like it or not. It's the question that unearths for everybody in this room either the greatest comfort or the greatest concern. The question that Christ asks has everything to do with seeing him as he really is. To see the person and to see the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want one idea, one target that you can point this scripture at the purpose of everything that we're going to be considering this morning, it is this, that the portion of this scripture is laid before us this morning to tell us the necessity of seeing Christ as the anointed and exalted king so that we might rest under his care. This has everything to do with seeing Jesus as he is the anointed and exalted king so that you might rest under his care. This is what the Sanhedrin needed to see, and it's what we need to see this morning. Consider back in Mark 12 how this unfolds as it really begins with this question, as we've been alluding to, specifically a question of identity. Notice back in verse 25 what it is that Jesus asks. He asked a question about the scribes' view of the Messiah. The scribes were the teachers, the ones responsible for the scriptures. And he goes to them and he asks them, why? Most of the people that 
would have been hearing Christ were well aware of the many Old Testament passages that spoke of God's promised rescuer who would come to deliver God's people and that specifically he would be in the line of David. If you're new to the scriptures, it's important at this point to know who David is. David was a great king. And under his rule were the glory years of the kingdom of Israel. David was this warrior poet. He was the the shepherd king. He established the city of Jerusalem. He expanded the borders of the nation. And he really set the table for the building of the temple, which his son Solomon would undertake. Most importantly, God made him a promise. And the promise that God made to David is in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Then verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In case there was any doubt in our minds as to what the Lord was promising David, it was not just the succession of kings or even the promise that his lineage would go on, but a specific promise that through his line would be an eternal kingdom forever. Forever. And a third time, forever. So if you grew up hearing this promise, knowing the scriptures, It would be this understanding that through a long succession of kings following David, you would be waiting for the earnest fulfillment of this promise when the perfect king, the eternal king, would come. And the question you would all be asking is, when will this Christ, this Messiah, this promised one, when will he come? So what Jesus does here is he takes up the subject that really every Hebrew worshiper knew and hoped in this promise given to David, and he asks a really important question. Notice that he does not ask, what does it say? He asks, what does it mean? And that's the sort of question that every student dreads hearing from the teacher. Not just what does the book say, what does it mean? Jesus holds up something that everybody assumed and recognized and says, Show your work. (laughs) How did this answer arrive at this location? Why do the scribes say this? He doesn't ask, do you believe in the conclusion? He doesn't ask, do you believe that the Christ is the son of David? But how can the scribes arrive at this conclusion that the promised Messiah is the son of David? And Jesus holds up this teaching that's broadly understood and assumed, but he asks, how can this be in light of what Scripture teaches? Again, notice what Jesus is doing. It's called the hermeneutic, how we read the Scriptures. What he's doing is saying that the Scriptures are the best interpreter of the Scriptures. If you want to understand what the Bible means, you need to understand the Bible. And so what he does here is ask a question of scriptural interpretation. This is understood. What does it mean? The relevance remains for us today because it's not enough, friends, to just say, I believe the Bible. There are all manner of 
well-intending people who will try to come to you and say, I believe the Bible, just like you. But the really important question is not, do you believe the Bible? Because the more important question that delineates between what is true and what is a damnable error is this question, what do you believe the Bible says? What does it mean? That's great that you believe in the Bible. What does the Bible mean? And that's exactly what Christ gets at. He asks this question. And where does he point? Look back at Mark chapter 12. Jesus points them to a particular passage that appears, this is what he's doing, appears to be a contradiction. If the Christ is to descend from the line of David, what do you do with this whole Psalm 112 bit? And that's where Jesus is putting his finger. He's pointing to Psalm 100, excuse me, 10. Psalm 110. He puts his finger on this portion of scripture and it says, notice what David says about his son. The son that we're all in agreement, you're expecting is going to be the Messiah. Okay. David said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, and then he goes on. Now you may be scratching your head as to saying, okay, and is this your big gotcha moment, Jesus? What are you doing with this? Why is this so important? Well, the emphasis is even more glaring when we see the Hebrew text uses two different words for Lord. In fact, if you read Psalm 110 in your English Bible, you might find that there's a delineation between this word Lord and Lord that to our ears sounds identical, but if you read it in the text, you'll find one most likely is in all caps, and the other one is a capital L. The first Lord in Psalm 110 is the name Yahweh. That's why it's most likely in all caps. Yahweh. It's the sacred name of God which he revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3. The I Am. The Eternal One. Yahweh. Then the second Lord in verse 1 is Adonai which typically refers to the supreme and absolute sovereignty of God. These two words, Lord and Lord, Yahweh, Adonai, they're often paired together in our scriptures. Psalm 8 verse 1 is an example. O Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Typically, we see them in synonym, in parallel thought. Yahweh is Lord. Yahweh is Lord. Here in Psalm 110, Yahweh says to Adonai. Now, usually they refer to the same person, namely God. But here in Psalm 110, we find Yahweh calling someone else Adonai. And according to the ministry of and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David says he has a son who's his sovereign Lord. Now, who is David's Adonai? Who is sovereign over the king of Israel? Who does the king of Israel answer to? Well, in Hebrew understanding, it is God. And so, Jesus says to his hearers, 
what do you do with this? King David says he has a Lord who is the sovereign Lord, who is his son. Why does this matter? Why does Jesus put his finger on Psalm 110? Well, it's worth noting that Psalm 110 is the most frequently Old Testament text quoted in the New Testament. That fact alone should cause us to see this is a massive flag waving us down to the importance of Psalm 110. The most quoted Old Testament text in our New Testament, that would tell us it's significant, primarily because of what it says about the ministry of our Lord Jesus. Now, when we survey the, brand, the, the grand scope of redemption, and specifically the, the person of Christ in his ministry, there are several moments of supreme importance when we think about our Lord Jesus. We can probably think of a few. One would include his his incarnation, his birth, God in the flesh. We would think of his death. We would think of his resurrection. And we'd think of his eventual return. All true. But there's another aspect of our Lord's ministry that's often overlooked, but it's filled with tremendous importance. It's known as his session or his sitting. To be seated, and this is why this term is used, our Lord's session, to be seated is to be in session. Think of a court. When the judge takes his seat, until that court breaks for recess, the judge has absolute authority over what is going on in his courtroom. And thus the word session has come to be associated with the, the rightful wielding of authority, the place of honor and the place of authority. And the most important session of all is the seating, the session, the authority of our Lord Jesus. So when Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand, Yahweh is saying to Adonai, take the place of highest authority and rule in your session." rule in your authority. It's summarized in what we confess in a portion of the Apostles' Creed. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Why is this creed of apostolic doctrine looked to as a sufficient summary and helpful summary of Scripture? Because of the very thing that Scripture teaches. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You'd also be helped by remembering 1 Peter 3, verse 21. Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What this is referring to is when our Lord Jesus descended into death, was raised from the grave, ascended to heaven, and now sits in authority, ruling, 
metaphorically at the right hand of God in the seat of honor and power. So what do the scriptures teach? Christ was crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, ascended, and seated at the right hand of the Father where he sits in rule as the divine mediator, the glorified priest king from which he shall return to judge the living and the dead. He is enthroned with supreme authority by which he will now and forever rule over all his creation. So here's why this matters. Jesus holds up this teaching and asks, how did the scribes get here? Because what Jesus is driving at is saying, the scribes are only half right. He is the son of David. But more importantly, he is the son of God. Christ did not come simply to extend the work of David, but to establish an entirely different kingdom, the throne of which is at God's right hand. His role, Christ's role, is not to restore on earth this Davidic kingdom, the sovereignty of Israel, but his role is to restore what sin has broken and redeem God's people. This is why he has come. He is the son of David and the son of God. Friends, this is so important as we understand what the good news is because it has everything to do with who is Jesus. It's not moralism. It's not doing certain things. It's not coming to even an ascent of certain knowledge and just saying, I agree that those things are probably true. Ultimately, it has to do with repentance and belief in who this Christ is. This element of son of David, son of God, is so essential. It's even in the introduction to the book of Romans, which if you know anything about the wonders of grace, you will know that it has something of supreme importance to say to us. Listen to Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which... He promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you hear it? That there it is. Descended from David according to the flesh, the promise, but declared to be the Son of God with power through the resurrection from the dead. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gospel is good news because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise and that he is God in the flesh. Without those two realities, there is no good news. And so the scriptures come to us and they continue to push on us the reality of the kingly authority of Jesus. Not only is he the God who comes down in human flesh, he is also the exalted king who rules over all creation with unchallengeable authority. So, when we speak of the session of Christ, we speak of one of the most comforting doctrines for earthly pilgrims. For we labor heavenward. And as we labor as pilgrims heavenward, we do so through many dangers, 
toils and snares. And our comfort in that pilgrimage is that there is one who's actually ruling and watching over all of this. That this is not just some circumstantial happenstance by which we just make our way through the gauntlet, but through these dangers, toils, and snares, through these afflictions, trials, griefs, and sorrows, there is one who watches over and is actually ruling over in perfect authority. He will preserve his church. There's not one single person of his body that will perish. The gates of hell will not prevail against her because of the enthroned Christ and his universal rule and authority. So Christian, can I encourage you here? Just pause for a moment to consider this. Learn more of the wonderful rule of Christ. Meditate on it. Think about it. Open up the scriptures and consider how might your particular circumstance right now, your disappointment, your bitter affliction, your grief, your concerns, how might those be illuminated by Christ's priestly, kingly, authority rule over that right now? Think upon that, and then the scriptures would compel us to take those worries, to take those cares before the reality of his good authority over your life. These doctrines are immensely practical when we consider what they testify. And friend, if we're talking about these themes of authority and eventual judgment, and if that sounds like a horribly oppressive idea to you, we would plead with you to listen more closely. The rule of Christ is a comfort for the Christians in this room because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's because Christ descended in great humiliation and rose to glorification that we have the promise that our sins are forgiven and we have a hope for eternity. This is comforting for the Christians in this room because instead of the wrath of God coming upon us, which we deserve, the scriptures announce good news, grace, and mercy upon all those who have hoped in Christ. You see, the authority of Jesus, friend, is actually such good news because it's by his authority that he administers grace and says sins are forgiven. Without that authority, it's just hopeful, maybe, sort of good thoughts. But that's not at all what we have in the gospel and how good and necessary it is for us to see Christ as the exalted and anointed king that we might rest under his rule. But there's not only this question that's asked. Mark gives us a contrast. There's a contrast of great significance. Look back how this unfolds after this teaching in verse 38. He continued in his teaching and said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, like greetings in the marketplaces, have the best seats in the synagogue, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box Many rich people put in large sums. 
And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those in their are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So as we read the final verses of chapter 12, we're meant to notice how both encounters are butted together, the scribes, the widow, and then laid alongside this teaching of Christ and his authority. Why? What are we meant to see as we read through this narrative in Mark's gospel? First, we're meant to see in the scribes this particular warning and ultimately the condemnation that Christ speaks of. Perhaps you know something about the scribes because of their privileged responsibility in preserving and teaching the scriptures. They were in this position of great honor. It was a wonderful honor to be a scribe among God's people. Your life revolved around the preserving and the teaching of God's word. In this honor, these men chose to wear long, white, linen robes that distinguished themselves from common citizens. And it was actually culturally expected for people to stand to their feet when these men passed them in the marketplace. You could just imagine there as you would make your way through the streets of Jerusalem and crowds of people and suddenly your eye would be caught by this bright white linen robe and then almost like at a stadium, the the wave of people standing up as these scribes make their way through Jerusalem. And when important men of Jerusalem would have a feast. They considered it really an ornament, and an honor at their feast to have a distinguished scribe and perhaps their students present among them. And not only present among them at their feast, but to give them the seat of honor, the seat of honor that would even usurp those patriarchs within that particular family. Grandpa, sit down here. Mr. Scribe, please take the seat of honor. It was forbidden for the scribes to be subsidized and paid, so they lived really on the generosity and the hospitality of others as well. The fact that Christ notes they devoured widows' houses meant that they often leached off those with limited means to their own benefit. And if their deluded sense of self-importance wasn't blatant enough, Christ says that they were infamous for their pretentiously long prayers. Now, Jesus is not rebuking the honor that comes with certain responsibilities of position, but he's rebuking them, saying that the scribes' craving for this honor, and worse yet, their expectation for this honor and entitlement to such things is damnable. They dressed to be seen. They prayed to be heard. They lived for honor and for entitlement. And to this Christ says, they will receive the greater condemnation. Perhaps James 3 is 
ringing in your ears. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There is this contrast between these men and then not their condemnation only, but this praise of another, a widow, in verses 41 through 44. Jesus, remember, in Jerusalem, at the temple, and within the temple courts, there were these 13 trumpet-shaped or fluted chests set out at various points around the temple for receiving of financial gifts. And it's here that Jesus goes people-watching. You've done this. He sits there in a crowd, noticing these various stations where many are coming and bringing their offerings, and he sits back and he begins to watch. And it didn't take long for him to observe something that demanded attention. Look back at verse 41. Notice the language. Many rich put in large sums. Verse 42, hear the contrast. One poor widow, two small coins. This contrast and what he observes provokes Jesus to gather the disciples and to draw their attention to this woman. Now, the fact of the contrast is not that odd. It was probably a pretty typical scenario, right? Rich, poor, large, small. What is surprising is the conclusion that Jesus draws from this observation. Kingdom math is not the math that we're accustomed to. Because according to Jesus, one poor widow put in more than all the others combined. Jesus, if you're sitting with him, you're asking, how does this add up? How can this be? How can you say that those two copper pennies are worth more than all the other fluted chests that are filled with money that others have put in? Well, because pragmatism and natural reasoning would say to us, well, that larger gifts are of greater worth. How much more can you do with $1,000 than $1? Surely, the larger gift is worth greater worth. But in kingdom economics, greatness is not measured according to abundance, but according to sacrifice. Others may have given much greater amounts of money, but Jesus says that the true value of the gift is attached to what is given up more than what is given. Others gave higher monetary amounts, but it was done out of abundance. And so in proportion that gift's actually insignificant. It would be as if there, on the temple and within this giving, there was a scale that weighed each gift with a numeric screen. And upon the giving of each gift, what was tallied up was not dollars and cents, but devotion and sacrifice required. Friends, by this standard, our giving statements might look very different than we would assume. True giving, true love, true honor is measured by sacrifice. This is the message of the New Testament. 
This is most certainly a theme within the Gospel of Mark. Do you remember Christ's teaching about greatness only two chapters earlier? Mark chapter 10, verse 43, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The contrast between this widow and the scribes could not be more severe. She has no ornate robes. No one stands to their feet when she walks in the room. There's no reserved seat with her name on it. There's no seat of honor for her at any feast. And yet, she is immortalized in Holy Scripture, spotlighted by Christ himself for the greatness of her gift. She is the ultimate counter, the ultimate contrast to these scribes because instead of seeking Jesus' life, she gives her whole life, all that she had. What are we to make of this? What are we to learn from this portion of God's word? Why has Mark, by the Holy Spirit, laid the exaltation of Christ alongside the pretension of the scribes and the poverty of this woman? I believe it's for this reason. So that we might see the exalted Christ who reigns in sovereign goodness so that we can cease from our striving like the scribes and rest content like this woman. Friends, the only way that we actually obtain what the scriptures call us to, ceasing from striving and resting in true contentment, is when we see Christ ascended and seated and ruling in perfect authority and goodness over all creation. True contentment, sacrificial generosity, only comes when we see Jesus as he is and that he is sufficiently ruling over all things. The call of Christ and the posture of Christian discipleship is to give. You can't escape that. It's to go all in, just like this poor widow. And the call to lay down our lives, it is not just simply this call to, to, to give out of our impoverished state. It's not a call to, to just do more and moralism, or it's not a call to just bear virtue. It comes through our joyful contentment in Christ's humiliation and his exaltation. I rest because the worst thing that could ever have happened to me has been vanquished upon the cross of Christ. Anything after that? That's just the end credits. It's done. The worst thing that could happen to me has been defeated at the cross of Christ. I can look at this circumstance right here. I can rest. At the same time, I'm content because my life is under the watchful care and sovereign rule of Christ. He sits in authority with a royal scepter, and he rules in perfect righteousness. There's nothing that surprises him. There's nothing that he has to pull out a playbook for and look how he might respond to this. 
He is in perfect authority over all things, ruling in perfect righteousness and perfect goodness for his glory and for the good of his people. I take content what he has sent. Brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus, your priest king, he rules over you this morning. Do you hear that? As your priest, he's offered himself up once and for all to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to our God. He stands this morning in the place of honor and authority as our advocate testifying to the innocence of his people and the cleansing by his own blood. So, if that's true, bring your sin-stained conscience to him. Confess your need for him by his cleansing and by his perfect blood. If he stands in authority as this great priest, then we come under his authority and say, cleanse me, renew me, forgive me, because you alone have the authority to heal me and to cleanse my conscience. And as your king, he subdued you to himself. He rules and defends you. He restrains and conquers conquers all your and his enemies. He stands this morning in the place of all honor and authority as our great defender, our shield, the lifter of our head. And so because of that, we bring to him our weary life, our sense of inadequacy, our fears, our anxieties, and we say, you're the king. There is nothing outside of your good authority that you do not know and will not deal with in perfect goodness and righteousness. And so, church, hear the call of Scripture to consider Christ and see him as he is, reigning in his glory in this exalted position. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, far above every rule and all authority and power and dominion. The Father has given to him a name which is above every name, testifying to his delight over his Son who has accomplished this great redemption of his people. Christ is the head of all principality and power, and from this position, Christ, he displays the glory of his exaltation as he reigns over all creation in infinite power, goodness, and wisdom. That is the Christ that we worship, and that is the Christ that is revealed in the scriptures. And so it's through this rule of Christ that he renders judgment and he gives life. And it's under this rule of Christ that God's people find their greatest assurance and their greatest comfort. So church, let's rest content under the rule of our king. Let's bring our lives under the reality of his kingship. Let's give our lives away spending and being spent for the name of Christ. Because even through our meager efforts that maybe appear quite often to be nothing more than two copper coins, Christ finds great delight. He finds wonderful delight even in our meager efforts as we say, this is for you, 
I give my all unto you for your glory. That brings great delight to our Father. Just as it brought Christ's attention upon the temple to point this out. We live in feeble obedience and feeble attempts at faithfulness with the assurance of our God's good favor because of our union with His Son. So let's live not for the passing rewards of this life, but for the eternal rewards of heaven, for the glory of this King. Would you pray with me? Father, we look to you this morning so thankful that you have accomplished the great need that we could never resolve in ourselves or by our own will or even with our greatest desires for it, but that you have accomplished the great thing that we could not do, but that we are so thankful you have done in the giving of your Son. Lord, help us to see him as he is, even as he's revealed in Scripture. Lord, we rejoice to know that he has the seat of honor, descended to death, alive forevermore, reigning in righteousness. Lord, we bring our lives under his righteous rule. We do take content what he has sent. We place our lives underneath his good authority, and we confess, even in hard times, in even bitter providence, the great comfort in knowing that, Lord, you are good and you do good. Lord, give us this greater ambition, a greater zeal to give, to spend and be spent as we recognize how much you have given. And out of joyful response to this good news, Lord, continue to work within us a genuine gospel generosity within our lives. Lord, we're asking these things because it's pleasing to you and we want to please you. We're asking these things because you've promised that they are true according to your word. And Lord, we plead, would you be faithful to your promise? Do these things here in our midst that we might see your son as he is. For Christ's sake.